happy Aloha Friday. Thanks so much for spending this Friday with us here at HPR. I'm Noe Tanigawa. Today, we're bringing threads from the 1970s into the present, and Aloha Aina is one of those threads. Aloha Aina was revived around Kaha'olawe in the 1970s. The tiny island was a Navy bombing target for 53 years, and we're about to hear the story of how that stopped from two members of the Protect Kaho'olawe Ohana. Ahead, Professor Daviana McGregor and Dr. Emmett Aluli. They're part of an exhibit of photographs of early landings on Kaho'olawe when it was still being bombed. In the mid-70s, Franco Samaragi had already begun taking photographs of land struggles in the islands when the opportunity came up to accompany a group of protesters to Kaho'olawe. Talking to Franco, you get an idea of the DIY kind of revolution that was really happening. Ragtag activists were standing up to the U.S. Navy. Samaragi was supposed to meet his Hawaiian contacts on Maui the night before the landing. Their boat failed on the way from the Big Island, but who knew? No cell phones, remember? So there I was, and nobody knew me, and they thought I was the FBI who was there because this was, you know, it was right after Emmett and Walter and them got arrested. Anyway, I thought I was going to die. I was so sick on the boat. And we finally got to Kaholave, and I could not stand up. And somebody walked up to me on the sailboat and says, if you want to go in there, you're going to have to jump into the water now. And I said, well, I can't get up. I said, well, I can roll you off. I said, okay. So they rolled me off the boat, threw me an in, an in, you know, a tube, and they threw my cameras in. So the waves put us into the uh, the beach. And the last few feet you get there, the wave came and it just threw me on the beach, head first. <laughs> I looked over and the black bag with my cameras got onto the beach. I took them out and I looked up and that photograph of Auntie Emma DeFreeze sitting on the beach, that was the first thing I saw. Talk to me about what it's like taking landscape photographs on Kaho'olawe. Is it remarkable at all? Or Oh, well, yeah. You've got Haleakala in the background all the time, the moonrise over Haleakala. I mean, we lost feet of dirt. And there's all these photographs I've made of big stones, huge stones. They fall on top of each other as the earth is being washed away because of the bombs and wind and everything. Photographing the um, Oahu is just it's amazing. Can you see any bombs? What bombs? Oh, the bombs. Oh, I could show you photographs. They were bombing the, the island for, what, 40 years? I don't know, but they were removing bombs for a number no, of years no, as well. No, no, the bombs all just stayed there. Emmett, he's telling me now that they left all the bombs there. Seriously, and some of them were alive still. In the 70s? No, even now, there still are places you have to be careful. Emmett can tell you all about that. He's been everywhere over there. Oh, I think David's got the best history. David, you want to jump in? Yeah, well, um, 
I remember that in around December of the 1975, I got a call from Charles Maxwell, who was at the time the head of Aloha Organization, which was Aboriginal lands of Hawaiian ancestry. And they had introduced a bill in Congress for the United States to pay reparations to the Native Hawaiians for the role of the United States in the overthrow of the Hawaiian monarchy. It was getting nowhere in Congress. And so I remember Charlie said, we're going to occupy some federal land. We have to have our own wounded knee. Wounded knee had just happened where I know on the Lakota reservation where Native Americans went up against the U.S. military. And finally, the Indian Self-Determination Act was passed. So they were looking at something to really draw national attention to the conditions of Native Hawaiians, where we were the highest incarcerated. We had the most critical health needs. We were highest on welfare. We had the most families proportionately at the poverty level in the 1970s. So the goal was to draw national attention to this. And then I got the call back in January, but I wasn't able to go. But he said they had decided it was going to be Koholawe that they would occupy uh, and get this national attention on the needs of Native Hawaiians and why the U.S. should pay reparations. To choose the target island. But then actually to do it. I mean, people today think, oh, it must have been somehow easier. Was it? No. So what it was, it must have been like hundreds of, of people on boats, mostly fishing boats. This was 1976? Right before I was gathered at Waikapu on January 3rd, and they were going to go over January 4th. But someone leaked it, made a press statement, and so the morning the Coast Guard showed up. And so confiscation of, of fishing boats was the issue. They were coming from every island, Big Island, Lanai, Molokai, mostly the Maui fishermen. But because they would confiscate the boats, everybody kind of left. Except one boat picked up some of us who were committed to land, and there were nine of us, including George Helm that made it to the island. It was just two of us, me and Walter Riddy, who when the Coast Guard came to take everybody off, decided now we're gonna split from the group and we're gonna explore and see what's on the island. You, oh, you and Walter stayed on the island for two days. What did, two days, what did you see? The worst devastation we've ever seen. All the bays were all muddy. You could just see the, all like bloody, muddy. You couldn't see any kind of clean water around the island. What Walter and I had saw was just a devastation of an island, of the land, of the ocean that's so unacceptable that needed to be stopped, needed to stop the bombing because of that. Could you see bombs? Yeah. Oh, yeah. All over. All over. And so that just started the movement. Hey, we got to stop the bombing. And then the subsequent formation of the Protect Koalave, Ohana. The motive, the reason, was something that George Helm picked up in his research, Aloha Aina. We're there for Aloha Aina. Aloha Aina, we kind of like was the reason for the formation and the protection and the end of the bombing. So that became our slogan, Aloha Aina. What did you mean by that? Love of the land. 
take care of the land, the land's going to take care of you. But it was also the movement way back against annexation. Joseph Navahi and his group and his newspaper called Aloha Aina to get all the signatures for the Kui petition. And you see how Aloha Aina is really spread across all the projects, programs for Native Hawaiian, you know, back to the land kind of movements. It was after 10 years of unprecedented growth also with statehood, getting into the 70s, people were making profits, but the burden of the development was being carried by the Native Hawaiians and the working people. In 1970, 80% of the people couldn't afford to buy a home in Hawaii. And yet they continued evicting people to build more expensive houses that people couldn't afford to live in. At what price does progress come? So I think people saw that time to do something. We're talking with Daviana McGregor and Emmett Aluli of the PKO, Protect Kaho'olawe Ohana. Dr. Aluli mentioned George Jarrett Helm of Molokai, a co-founder of the Protect Kaho'olawe Ohana. Helm spread the message of Aloha Aina through his music, and you can get an idea of how he did that through live recordings at a club, the gold coin here in Honolulu. Helm's sudden disappearance at age 26 shook the islands. In the 1970s, PKO members resolved to act on their understanding of Aloha Aina. No, this was really the first time that people had stood up against the U.S. military. You know, so it was, it was just defining, explaining the issue of land as being our ancestor. And we are here to take care of the land and just bring that whole philosophy of Aloha back into our lives. I guess what eventually happened to a responsibility for and care of Kaho'olawe? In 1990, in order to try to get Pat Saiki elected to Congress, President Bush stopped the bombing of the island. He ordered all military live fire ordnance training to stop on the island in October 22 of 1990. Pat Saiki didn't get elected, but Senator Akaka and Senator Inouye had set up a a conveyance commission to study what was to be done with the island. And then there was a study and there was appropriated $400 million to clean up the island, to restore it as a Native Hawaiian culture reserve. Fortunately, Senator Inouye at the time, with Auntie Frenchie DeSoto also being part of the conveyance commission, realized that if we didn't get the island back before the cleanup, we would never get it back. 
because in every other instance throughout the continent and Pacific Islands, once they do a cleanup, they always say, oh, we can't clean up enough. It'll still be a liability. We cannot let people come onto the land. So fortunately, the island was turned back to Hawaii in May of 1994. Then began a 10-year cleanup with $400 million. At the end of it, they said, oh, we're 90% sure that we got 80% of the ordinance. And we knew at that time, I say, wow, if we didn't have the island back, we would never have gotten it back. Well, so, so Noe, what happens is, is George Helm is working on an axis in February of 76 to ask permission for us to kind of come to the island to restore the island and stop the bombing. And that's what Franco has documented in February 1976, the very first legal access. Before George disappeared, he filed a a civil suit. And the civil suit was kind of like make sure the Navy did an environmental impact statement for all their bombing activities, make sure there was an archaeological historic site survey, make sure there was endangered species survey, make sure there was a marine mammals kind of like protection act you know all these new acts but make sure that native hawaiians have the rights of access to the island for religious purposes that was all first amendment george was so insightful then could you talk about that that landing on the island in 1977 um, george helm and kimo mitchell it was a tragic landing. I mean, that's when we decided, people in the Ohana, that illegal occupations is too risky. Too risky. He went there to tell those who were occupying the island that their occupation was no longer working because the Navy continued to bomb. And there's a whole mystery of what happened that has not been settled between families, members, what happened to George? Did he just kind of like get eaten by the sharks as he tried to kind of like leave the island in some rough conditions on a surfboard with Kimo Mitchell, his cousin? Did they make it to Molokini or did the sharks get him? Or, or George Hunt was so politically involved with development especially on the McKenna side, because water was his specialty. So what was it? And so that thing has never come through an understanding what happened to George. And there's, you know, still that question. Mm -hmm. So we move forward on George's civil suit. And in organizing for the civil suit came the negotiations with the Navy, and we were so far apart in what we proposed and what the Navy was going to accept. What happened? How did the Navy return the island? They had to bring in um, Ninth Circuit Court from California. So they brought in a judge and he said, okay, you come up with a consent decree. And the consent decree wasn't bad. The important thing is to allow the Ohana onto Ko'olawe for religious purposes. And that was the main thing for George, to establish the Makahiki on Kohlabe. 
Auntie Edith Kanakaoli told us, you go to Koholawe to establish the Makahiki. That's your rights. That's what you got to do. Nalani Kanakaoli wrote the protocol, wrote the chant. In 1981, we opened and closed the first Makahiki that simply put Kaos Lono to bring his winds, to gather the clouds over Koholawe, to bring the rain, to green the land, to raise the water table. At the same time, to green ourselves, to continue to struggle or be successful. All that works. And now we're celebrating uh, the closure of our 40th anniversary. Sweet and Is there such a thing as a Hawaiian Renaissance? Was there? Is there? Oh, definitely, yes. <laughs> we were looking at the loss of our language and, um, you know, we were looking at the loss of our culture. And when Ko'olawe happened and made the connection to our religion and our collective soul as a Hawaiian people, at the same time, the Hokulea was organizing to recognize Hawaiian navigational arts. The whole movement for Hawaiian language started at the same time by making Hawaiian one of the two official languages for the state. Constitution Convention in 1978 in itself was part of that peaking of the Renaissance. It also recognized Native Hawaiian rights. It set up the Office of Hawaiian Affairs and it said that Native Hawaiians are one of the two beneficiaries for the Ceded Public Lands Trust. We feel most proud about reviving our Hawaiian spiritual beliefs and practices in partnership, as I said, with the Edith Kanaka'ole Foundation. It really is a reverence for land and a practice of stewardship for the land and the resources, including water. And this couple of aloha was what we had learned on Koholabe through the Edith Kanaka'ole Foundation also. At the end of the Koholabe Island Conveyance Commission, before they were going to give their report to Congress, Auntie Frenchie DeSoto said, let's organize a healing ceremony and let's bring together all of the key decision makers from Hawaii and get a commitment from them that they're going to do whatever they can in their power to protect Kohlabe and to make it safe. And so there was this healing ceremony. We had Senator Inouye, we had Congressman Abercrombie, we had Governor Waihe'e, we had all the Office of Hawaiian Affairs and kupuna from every island. We had a ceremony of ava, and when they drank that cup of ava, they made a commitment that they would do what they could in their power to protect Koholabe. And you know, each of them came through. This idea of kapualoha and approaching our protection of the land with reverence for the land and for ourselves and for even those who are opposing us is really important. You know, already with Red Hill, there have been ceremonies to call upon the gods, the Akua, to help protect the precious water of Oahu. Professor Daviana McGregor and Dr. Emmett Aluli, members of the Protect Kaho'olaveohana, 
Our guest today was photographer Franco Samaragi, whose moving photographs of Kaho'olawe are on view now at Arts and Letters Nu'uanu through May 6th. It's a fundraiser for the Protect Kaho'olawe Ohana. Protect Kaha'olaweohana member George Helm here, singing about the first Hawaiian homestead, Kalamaula, created in 1921 on Molokai. Coming up, Hula is getting a boost on Maui. Support for The Conversation comes from the HPR Local Talk Show Fund, which helps Hawaii Public Radio sustain and grow its locally produced talk shows. Mahalo to contributors Naamea Hawaii and PCAT, Pacific Center for Advanced Technology Training. If Hawaii Public Radio's mission of community service resonates with you, and if you're a service-minded self-starter with an eye for detail and a facility with databases... Our full-time membership coordinator position may be just the job you're looking for. Find out more on the Employment Opportunities page at hawaiipublicradio.org and let us hear from you. Support for the Aloha Friday Conversation comes from Native Books on Nu'uanu Avenue in Chinatown, offering a variety of Hawaiian and Pacific Island books and resources for all ages. Also online at nativebookshawaii.org. easy, right? It's Aloha Friday, and Kumuhula Cody Pata is here with us. He leads an international hula school from his home on Maui. Pata's a steering committee member for the Huamakahikina Hula Declaration, which was formulated last year. In it, hula teachers came together to document fundamental understandings about hula, and the energy of coming together is starting to ripple out into action. Earlier this month, Maui Mayor Victorino announced the, con- the county will pitch in for a new hula center. And Kumukoti Pata says support for these centers is growing statewide. This is going to be a space, the first one of its kind, designed for hula. 
just to point out that we have here on Maui, we have a Filipino community center. Oahu has a Japanese um, cultural center. All it took was for those people to come together, demonstrate a need, and, and boom, they have facilities. And so um, it's, it was time for, for our hula community to do the same. This property, how much land is it and where and what do you want to do there? It's in the Ili Kupono called Pe'epe'e um, in Wailuku. Stunningly, you know, we didn't know that this, this was going to take place so quickly. Um, but Uavela Kahao, the, the, the iron was hot and so we're striking while it's hot. Yeah, Really exciting. You know, what's going to happen next, do you think? The Maui Kumuhula have to organize. Uh, we've already agreed to start up a non-profit. And so because there's going to be lots of um, funds, millions actually, that, that need to be managed for this, this initial push going. And so we, we've been very blessed to have a small um, injection of county funds to help get an administrator, to help get the, the, the ball rolling. But there's so many small steps, like the Kumuhula are doing this for volunteer. So today, for instance, there's going to be graphic design and um, web design for the splash page that's going to be coming up. There's so many little details that... You know, as Kumuhula, we're not familiar with, but this is the face that you see. We, we just smile and, and we make it look effortless, even though inside we're going, oh, my God, what's going on? <laughs> You're doing something different here. You know, I think of people farming interest groups and PACs and lobbying and stuff, but mm. I don't know. We're, we're engaging the Pilina network, right? The relationship network that amongst Kumuhula, amongst um, other practitioners in the community, and even our relationships with the council members and the mayor himself uh, here on Maui. And so uh, because because it's about relationships, right? Um, first and foremost, the halal come together to, to form these relationships, to strengthen our bonds. Here on Maui, I think we're, we're outstanding because we all love each other. We all get along with each other. Luckily, we, we have all of our students, too. We have graphic designers in our halal. We have web designers. We have anything that we need. So it's, again, engaging our network of, of Pilina that will get this done, along with our cooperation and um, the support from Maui County. Thanks for setting an example of how a community group can move forward. Oh, yeah, yeah. The name of the facilities is going to be Halau of OEV Art. Because um, although it's, it's hula-centric, other art forms for which hula serves as a nexus will also be able to access the space, and so on. But the acronym for that is HOA, H-O-A. And HOA means companion, partner, friend. It also means bound together. Because this is going to be the first building of its kind, but we want satellite facilities in all of the communities on Maui Nui. And we want that to serve as, as kind of the exemplar for um, the rest of Hawaii Nui. But to have a facility specifically created um, for hula, designed by Kumu Hula for our needs, it's never been done before. You think about the Mary Monarch Stadium, right? It's held at the Edith Kanakaole Tennis Stadium. It's a tennis stadium. And, I, and we've heard the stories where Auntie Pua and Auntie Nalani, they say, oh, when did our mom ever, ever play tennis, right? Auntie Edith ever play tennis. Kumuhula are tenacious, and, and we also don't want any failures to reflect on ourselves personally, on our halau or our teachers. And so we have, we have a you know, different type of drive than I think most people would. <laughs> <laughs> right, I know what you mean. Kumuhula, Cody Puyopata of Halau Hula Okama Lama Mahilani, steering committee member for the Huamakahikina Hula Declaration. He's talking about building an infrastructure for hula in Hawaii. Yeah, Lord,
Genoa Keave from her Party Hula's album right here. This is one hula everybody should know. <laughs> Why not? Papalina Lahilahi. Auntie Genoa sang all the time into her 90s in Waikiki at church at Luau. When we get the opportunity to hear these greats, we got to be there. <laughs> Support for The Conversation comes from the HPR Local Talk Show Fund, whose contributors help Hawaii Public Radio sustain and grow its locally produced talk shows. Mahalo to contributor Anchor Systems Hawaii. HBO has a new documentary featuring distinguished actors reading the words of Frederick Douglass. On the next Fresh Air, we listen to our interview with historian David Blight, whose biography inspired the project. And we'll remember physician Paul Farmer, who spent much of his life bringing health care to some of the world's poorest people. Join us. Beginning this afternoon at 3, following Science Friday. By the time Kalapana released their first album, 1975, they had a solid fan base. A year later, their second album hit the national billboard chart at 197, ahead of The Temptations and Tower of Power. Multi-instrumentalist Kirk Thompson was a founding member with singer-guitarist Mackie Fury, DJ Pratt, and Malani Bilyeu. Over the years, Thompson played with Hawaii's top musicians and worked closely with music icon Don Ho and with Tom Moffat, the promoter who introduced rock and contemporary pop to Hawaii. But that was later. Thompson says, in Hawaii, before the 1970s, local musicians were treated like second-class citizens. We broke the biggest nightclub in Waikiki, 1970, finally. The place was called the Red Noodle. It was in the back of the international marketplace. Right behind Don Holes. <laughs> okay. Don was helping me out too and all that. It was very exciting. We were on our way to the Crater Festival at that time. The first one. It must be. Yes. We had a huge battle of bands and uh, we played Tower Power and Santana music. <laughs> so that's the type of band that we were. What band was this at that time? It was called Pacific. Rockin' and Rolling at the time. And another band called Beowulf, which is another outstanding band from Waipahu. We were the two bands who had a battle of bands who won the uh, contest from Tom Moffat. They had three stages inside the Diamond Head Crater. Main stage, rock stage, and the folk stage. And so we were battling who was going to go on the main stage. <laughs> so we landed up on the rock stage, but that was fine with us. At least we made it to the, the Crater Festival. It was a big deal for local bands at the time. But uh, conquering Waikiki was our first step at our younger age. It was a big deal at the time. <laughs> and that was two bands. Wow, you're describing a music scene that really was so different. Where were local people playing music? Uh, in the smaller clubs on the outskirts, the various areas around the islands and things like that. There was a lot of talent in Hawaii. <laughs> and we thought we were just good enough as the rest of them were. And so, I, I really, I, man, I kept blasting away there because I, I knew we had a lot of great players over here who could really play. And like who? Very, 
Oh, like my guitar player was John Raposa. John Raposa was our George Benson over here. And we had monsters. Look at Michael Paolo, okay, who joined, oh, yeah. sitting in the dark over here, waiting for the chance the, for the breakout. Like Henry was, like I said, from Kapuhulu. He represented all of Kaimiki and Kapuhulu area. There was artists like that from every district around the islands. Really? <laughs> That's the way it was in Hawaii. We were holding our ground as much as we could. And uh, finally, we pushed out all the mainland bands. And we took over Waikiki. <laughs> but it took that many years. I started in the 60s, you know, easily. We were slamming away at the 60s. They finally broke in the 70s, you know, right about 1970. It's when local like, bands were let in, huh? Yeah, because we were all in the outskirts of Waikiki. You know, and that was when the local bands made it onto the stages at the Crater Festival, too. Yes, it was all part of the whole scene. But the pioneers of this whole movement, which I call a movement, is people like Dick Jensen. There was a club in Waikiki called the Lemon Tree, which was uh, actually called the Cheetah way back in the 50s. Right across from the Waikiki wall, where everybody used to slide on. Yeah. He was our James Brown over here. He made it to the Ed Sullivan show. But people don't realize what he did for Hawaii and what that all did to inspire all the rest of the next generation and the next generation who are coming up. I loved what you were saying about the different areas of Oahu having their own bands and their own music. Talk about that. Oh, okay. We had huge battle of the bands. Like Kalihi, I'll tell you the two areas that had the strongest bands. <laughs> the Filipinos, Kalihi and Waipahu. They're known for having the strongest bands. All right. And uh, what happened was uh, at that period of time, there was a thing called the Million Dollar Party Tom started at the uh, Waikiki Shell. And uh, the two winners of the uh, Battle of the Bands were Klee, I believe, and, uh, and Waipahu. <laughs> okay. And they were fantastic. I mean, they were like the Beatles and Rolling Stones. The Undertakers did the song Rosalind, which sounded fantastic. And the Spirits did the uh, double shot. And they were going to make a 45. That was a grand prize. And they were the first recordings other than Hawaiian music playing contemporary pop music from Hawaii. So you're saying there was this high level of music making. Oh, yes. I mean, 10,000 kids were there screaming. The kids were really, they were hungry for it. The islands were hungry for it. And so when we finally came along, we finally filled that gap in because the kids had enough over here. They wanted their heroes, so to speak, because they all felt that the island guys were just as good as the rest of the guys. Yeah. C and K were kind of the first to break through there sure. on yeah. the national scene. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Henry's about three years older than I was, so he was another generation right before us. We were under the same management. And so what happened, we, we replaced them when they took off the Columbia Records, so to speak. We were under the same manager who built the nightclub for them. Who was that? Ed Guy. He was very smart to put this whole thing together. He saw the movement, and he put Henry and Cecilio in a club called the Rainbow Villa, right in uh, Waikiki, when you come mm. out over the Makali uh, Bridge. Henry and Cecilio started there. Then he needed another band to take their place. He handpicked us all and put us together over there and we went, shoot, we're ready to go. You and DJ Pratt had known each other for a long time. Oh, yeah. We're colorful. Yeah. Yeah, what was he like? What kind of guy was he? Oh, DJ was very calm, very, uh, very smart. He was very talented. I mean, he was very skillful. He was a hard worker, too. And uh, we all were. What was Malani Bill you like? Pretty much the same. Most of the musicians were all on the same channel because it took the same kind of drive and uh, energy. And uh, and so everybody had one thing in common. And, uh, 
making it wasn't all that easy. You know, we had a lot of competition and all that kind of stuff. What was Mackie Fury like as a person? Oh, Mackie was one talented son of a gun. I knew him from Kamiki Intermediate School, and I used to jam with him at school in the bathrooms and everything like that. And we were all young kids. <laughs> He was writing songs back then. How about that? He was the first guy to even start writing songs way back then. And, uh, mm. But he was very talented, and he was, uh, he was going someplace. He was, he was very skilled. And, uh, what was kind of the first song that you folks put together? My goodness. Well, I, I'll move forward. Right after CNK took off to Columbia Records, our manager, Ed Guy, he, he had a chain of clothing stores called The Shop. And that's why our place was called the top of the shop because he built the nightclub on top of the shop. <laughs> okay. And so our nightclub was called the top of the shop. Like I said, he had just put the CNK on the map, so to speak. And he wanted to do, do something different by why don't I train these done X? And we went, whoa, we're getting ready to go here. He said, I'm going to train you guys. We're going to do this thing right. And I went, okay. So we were kind of handpicked and uh, we were put together. And each person was uh, set to do a certain job. That's how boy bands are formed. <laughs> yeah. I mean, are, are you saying that he kind of put the four of you together? Yeah, and me and Dij were already together. Mm-hmm. Me and Dij and another band called Sunlight out at uh, Hawaii Kai in the uh, Chuck Steakhouse. Oh. Aki and Milani are playing upstairs in another room in Hawaii in the, in the same mall. And we all knew that uh, Tom was uh, on the hunt. So we put the band together and uh, we started getting ready for the, the times when things are going to break. And, uh, and Henry gave us a couple of heads up and things like that. So, you know, and so they needed another band to fill in when they took off. And uh, we raised our hands and went, okay, that'll be us. Rolling summer, winter through the day. That guy built us our own nightclub called the Top of the Shop, down off Kiyomoku. Right there where Kentucky Fried Chicken is, our club was right there. <laughs> they started training us over there. So the club took off. It was huge. And we worked seven nights a week. And uh, we honed our skills and things like that. He had put uh, Henry and them on Columbia Records. He was actually studying their, the recording industry as well. And as he watched, he was watching them, you know, how, how much money they would put behind them or back them, or how much they would push. <laughs> you know what? He said, I'll take my own money and I can do that. Okay. And he says, you know what, we're going to form our own record label. Let's do it. So we formed our own record company and everything like that. And he moved us all up to uh, California. We started off in Huntington Beach, so to speak. We had to work our way up to Bob Dylan's house up in uh, one of his homes that he owned up in Malibu. You guys are taken off the streets in Honolulu where we're trying to get a music scene together. And you're put in this recording studio situation in L.A. Now, all of this took took a lot of years now. We're in the top of the shop for almost three years Uh, we had to build up all that audience and things like that. And then uh, people were asking, when are you guys going to record? When are you guys going to record? And there was a movement going on, so to speak. And the movement was growing uh, in the United States, too, as well as in Hawaii. What movement was that? This big uh, music movement, the pop music scene. Electric was crossing over into acoustic. And it was explosive. And then that's when Woodstock came out. I don't know. How would you describe the music you folks were making? In Kalapana, we crossed over. Okay, what happened is we were started off as acoustic. And that's where Mackie and Amon came in because they were, mm-hmm. they were acoustic guys. So to speak, me and DJ came off electric, but we could play acoustic, we could do anything. Can you talk about, for example, Naturally, and sure. how the sounds came together for that song? Malani wrote the song, and uh, each uh, member was uh, in charge of uh, writing X amount of songs for their first album. 
since Melania and Matthew were the uh, main uh, vocalists in the bands, they were in charge of writing three songs a piece, and then me and DJ had to write two and two, and that would be the total for the whole album. And so um, naturally, when he wrote it, it was, it was beautiful. I mean, it was perfect and acoustic. It was acoustic at the time and very gentle. It was just perfect for the for the sound and for the times and everything like that. Malani just played it on his guitar first for you guys. And... Oh yeah, it came natural. We're talking with Kirk Thompson, the only surviving original member of Kalapana, a band that shaped Hawaii's music scene starting in the 1970s. Original band members became stars in their own right. Singer-guitarist Mackie Fury, Malani Bilyeu, DJ Pratt, and Kirk Thompson. Kalapana would often open concerts with this song right here, Thompson's composition, Black Sand. The way Thompson describes Honolulu's music scene in the early 70s when they started, it's like locals storming the citadel of Waikiki because young guys, was mostly guys, were making a lot of music in Honolulu. Rock and roll started in the 50s. So in 1956, we had rock bands here. So in the 1960s, we had tons of rock bands here. Then naturally, we wanted to get... It started expanding. That's why I brought up the thing with the only mainland bands were, were playing in Waikiki because the uh, club owners then would only trust mainland bands to handle the uh, audiences, the, the tourists and things like that coming in. They wouldn't trust the uh, local bands. They weren't considered good enough. <laughs> I said, no, we're just as good, we're just as good. So it took another, whole another generation to break that kind of thing. Then the Kalapana and CK thing came in. So it took a couple of generations to break that ice. How did Don Ho make it nationally? Oh my goodness. Well, first of all, he was in control of the whole uh, industry over here. And people didn't even understand that. Without entertainment, the tourists would have no place to go. So it was a huge industry called entertainment. <laughs> but the value of that period, not even the state of Hawaii, okay? Don single-handedly did Same thing with Tom and the need for pop music and radio and all nine yards. They did it silently. And they went about the business very quietly. And the demand was just there. The demand was huge. You can hand it to Elvis Presley. My goodness. Yeah, I guess he put Hawaii on the map, you know, by coming here. And... Yeah, and Tom Hoffa was the one who drove him all around the island. <laughs> Tom was very oh, He was such a lovable guy. And oh. with Sweetie, his wife, they were just this easygoing combination of, of localness. He made them feel so comfortable. I was talking to Tom. He said, oh, yeah, when Elvis came, he could have jumped inside his limousine, but he wanted to jump in Tom's car. And so they went to go eat, you know. <laughs> they were hungry, so they got a hamburger, you know. Uh, when I listened to Tom tell me, I go, oh, my goodness, Tom, you. He, he's so down to earth, but I went, okay. <laughs> yeah, he really. Well, he was relaxed. He was comfortable. And he remembered it. You know, it seemed maybe like a crazy idea to have a music festival inside a Diamond Head crater, but I don't know. People just did those kinds of things. It, well, the whole United States was exploding with uh, the music scene, and record sales were gigantic at the time. And so uh, music was very, very big in, in the whole culture of everything. And so just like in 
other parts of the United States, Hawaii was very explosive. So Tom Moffat was on top of it. He knew what he was doing. And the demand was great. We were hungry. We were waiting <laughs> to do it. And um, Mackey was, uh, I tell you what, Mackey was writing before Kalapana. He could just dial up a song anytime and write about any subject and, uh, and st- start playing a song. Moon and Stars. There, there's a lot. Everybody has their own favorites, so to speak. That is shining tonight. Do you see her and what is she doing? After seeing CK take off the Columbia Records, we started taking it very seriously and get a little more organized in our, our minds. So finally, we had some direction, okay, and purpose, and it, it made it a lot more easier and a lot more clear what we were doing and why we were doing it. We had a timeline and everything that we were shooting for. We had a nightclub that we had to practice and hone down our skills and everything. We knew that we were going up to the main to record. We just didn't predict the whole venture, so to speak. Yeah. What about Nightbird? Can you talk yeah. about that song? Oh, there you go, Mackie. He was a Paul McCartney of, of, the, of the group, and uh, he could write prolifically. I, I knew him when from Kamiki school, and he, was doing, he could imitate anybody and anything. And uh, copying the records, when we were young kids, the whole thing in Hawaii was sounding just like the record. Mackie used to hate, oh, sound like Paul McCartney's song, man. He goes, oh, I wrote it, man. So we used to tease each other. But uh, we finally broke out of that uh, darkness, and we finally came into an original. Uh, and then uh, learning how to write and how to uh, deliver songs and things like that. Yeah. We learned a lot. Before we leave this, you folks were making music right through the Hawaiian Renaissance. Um, how did the Hawaiian Renaissance affect you all? Uh, it didn't affect us too much because we were kind of leading the way. And both uh, CNK and Kalapana, were, we, had, we had a job to do because we were breaking the way because there's no bands assigned to major record labels. This was a big movement that started way, way before. That's why I brought up the movement uh, earlier. There were a lot of talented groups that didn't get the break that we got. And we were late as far as the rest of the world is concerned. And Hawaii was out here in the middle of the Pacific Ocean surrounded by water. And we had tremendous amounts of talent here. And there was a generation prior before us. I love to send you a picture of the museum because there was almost 30 to 40 artists on the walls. And they're all national recording artists. Along the shore, just me and you and starry album was a kill-off. <laughs> and, and what would you say happened in the evolution of Kalapana? Both CNK and Kalapana inspired the next generation to want to uh, shoot a little bit higher than okay. just make the Waikiki. Look at Bruno Mars. <laughs> He's a perfect example of what I'm talking about. He conquered it. When, he, when I see him on those stadiums performing all on a global scale, he convinced himself as not only the people, but he convinced himself he believed in what he was doing. I'm so proud of him that uh, he took it to the highest level that anybody could, any artist from any place in the world. We heard Kirk Thompson, original member of the legendary band Kalapana. Thompson founded the National Music Foundation of the Pacific and the Honolulu Museum of Contemporary Pop. 
after years of wrangling over rights, that iconic first Kalapana album's back in black vinyl at Aloha Got Soul, AGS, the local specialty records dealer. Should be out next month. Ask Roger Bong, the proprietor, about that. Roger, by the way, just started a radio program here, Moke to Makai, Sundays from 4 to 5 on HPR 1. And have you heard Bruno Mars' new collaboration with Anderson Pack? It's called Silk Sonic. Wait a minute, this love started off so tender, so sweet. But now she got me smoking out the window. Must have spent 35, 45,000 up in Tiffany's. Bruno Mars and Anderson Pack. The two are on a three month residency at the Park MGM in Las Vegas. Just talked to one local guy who went five times already. Check out Silk Sonic. That's it for this Aloha Friday. Thanks so much for joining us. Huge mahalo to our guests today. You know, the conversation's a kako thing, produced by Russell Subiono, Savannah Harriman-Pote, and Lillian Song. And you, you make this happen. You know that. Talk to us. We love it. Call the Talkback line, 808-792-8217, or email talkback at hawaiipublicradio.org. All these stories are right on the conversation page on the HPR website. Theme music here courtesy of Gypsy 808. I'm Noe Tanigawa. Join us Monday when Catherine Cruz picks up the conversation. Until then, let's take care of each other, okay? And have a happy Aloha Friday. Mm-hmm.